Hey, you're listening to the audio version of Well Read with Justin Chapman. If you'd like to watch the video version, please go to youtube.com backslash C backslash Justin Chapman 15 or just search for Well Read with Justin Chapman in the YouTube search bar. Learn more at justindouglaschapman.com. Enjoy the show. Welcome to Well Read. I'm your host, Justin Chapman. I'm not sure if anyone has noticed, but we're under attack, cyber attack. State-sanctioned, or at least state-tolerated, criminal groups have unleashed a series of ransomware attacks on critical infrastructure across the United States. There was the Colonial Pipeline shutdown, which crippled the East Coast gas supply. There was the JBS meat processing plant shutdown, which impacted one-fifth of all beef production in the country. Cox Media Group was hit. Multiple government agencies were hit in a massive attack. A tech vendor that provides constituent outreach services to dozens of congressional offices was the target of a ransomware attack. They've targeted all facets of U.S. life and infrastructure, including food, gas, water, hospitals, and transportation. FBI Director Christopher Wray compared these attacks to 9-11. What confidence can average citizens have in corporations and the government to protect our data, to protect the sensitive information that's inextricably linked to our lives and our livelihoods and the safety of our loved ones? National security officials have been saying for years that we need to buck up our cybersecurity defense as well as offense, and somehow we're still not prepared. In some ways, societies with state control or at least state influence over private sector companies have been better positioned to defend and engage in the cyber sphere. Whereas in the US, the public and private sectors are too siloed. Though it was interesting that the Justice Department seized about half of the cryptocurrency ransom payment from the colonial pipeline attack, a new front has been opened in the digital battlefield in our increasingly virtual world. But there are, of course, threats to our democracy from within as well. Trumpism is not over. Trump himself is not even over. He believes he will be reinstated to the presidency by August. He and his lackeys are pushing for forensic audits of ballots in Pennsylvania, Georgia, and Wisconsin, such as the sham that's currently being conducted in Arizona by a company called Cyber Ninjas, the CEO of which is a proponent of the big lie that the election was stolen from Trump. Facebook said the ban on Trump will be lifted in early 2023, just in time for him to use the platform to raise money again for his run for the White House. With very few exceptions, Republicans in the House and Senate are still lockstep behind Trump. Republican-controlled state legislatures across the country are passing strict voter suppression measures. Republicans are highly favored to win the House next year. If they keep the House in 2024 and the same scenario plays out in the presidential election that happened in 2020, they'll be in a much better position to stop the certification of Biden's re-election. If Democrats fail to pass their voting rights bill before November 2022, they could be locked out of power for years. Since West Virginia Senator Joe Manchin announced that he's not voting for that voting rights bill, even though 79% of West Virginians support the bill, that's not looking likely. So all these Republican efforts in several swing states to restrict voting rights will likely be successful. 
Manchin might as well be a Republican. And the Senate really is split 50-50 rather than a Democratic majority. If Republicans are in charge when the largely ceremonial certification of the 2024 presidential election takes place on January 6, 2025, and then a crowd larger and meaner than the January 6, 2021 mob overwhelms the parts of the government that held up this time, will they next time? They will cheat to win, have no doubt. You know as well as all of us that anything can happen between now and January 2025. Trumpism isn't over. The stakes of 2020, largely seen as the most important election of the entire history of the country, will seem like a normal run-of-the-mill election compared to what we'll be up against in 2024. It's coming sooner than you think. We can't let down our guard. Let's take a look now at snapshots of international, national, and California news. In international news, Secretary of State Anthony Blinken recently traveled to Reykjavik, Iceland to attend the ministerial meeting of the Arctic Council, a 25-year-old organization that aims to foster cooperation among the eight Arctic nations, Canada, Denmark, Finland, Iceland, Norway, Sweden, Russia, and the United States. Because of climate change, the Arctic is warming at twice the rate of the rest of the planet. Ice is melting and seas are rising, and this means new shipping lanes are opening up in areas that were previously impassable. There are new areas to mine for rare earth minerals and areas to establish strategic military bases. So this has launched a new geopolitical struggle for influence, especially between the US, Russia, and China. In national news, a new comprehensive Senate report revealed that federal intelligence agencies and the Capitol Police knew in December that pro-Trump extremists were threatening to storm the Capitol and infiltrate its tunnel system on January 6th, and they failed to warn law enforcement officials on the ground. Anyone who wasn't living under a rock in the days and weeks leading up to January 6th knew that they were threatening violence and wanted to stop the certification of Biden's win. While this isn't really new information to those of us paying attention, it's still disturbing and disappointing. In California news, an analysis by economists at UCLA found that California's strict public health measures during the pandemic actually protected its economy. California had less of a contraction last year than Texas, Florida, and Indiana, states with fewer restrictions. As the nation emerges from its downturn, the economists predicted California would recover faster than the rest of the nation. California also has one of the lowest rates of new COVID cases right now and fewer deaths than states like Florida, which took a drastically different approach to the pandemic. Let's patch in our guest, Tyson Cornell. Tyson, thank you so much for coming on the show. Tyson is the founder, owner, and publisher of Rare Bird Lit and Rare Bird Books, a Los Angeles-based independent publisher of 40 books a year, which, full disclosure, published my book about my travels across Africa, Saturnalia, Traveling from Cape Town to Kampala in Search of an African Utopia in 2015. Uh, Tyson spent nine and a half years with the legendary Sunset Strip independent bookstore Book Soup and served as the director of marketing and publicity. He has coordinated events for thousands of authors, celebrities, and politicians, including Hunter S. Thompson, Barack Obama, Bill Clinton, David Foster Wallace, uh, Al Gore, Paris Hilton, Henderson Cooper, uh, Jerry Stahl, Carl Rove, met many more. Uh, Rare Bird Lit is a literary marketing, publicity, and design firm that specializes in general services for the book industry, including publishers, authors, and organizations. So Tyson, why don't you uh, start by uh, telling us about your, your early life and career and, and, and how you got into the book industry? 
Sure. Yeah. I, uh, well, I, first and foremost, I'm a, I'm a book lover and a book reader. Creatively, I, I'm a musician, but books come, come first in my life, always have. And uh, I always spent time in bookstores and had an affinity for, for them. But uh, I, I came into the industry through writing my graduate thesis on the American newsstand. And I worked and hung out at many all-night L.A. newsstands, absorbing culture and um, studying people and and observing. Uh, and one of those was the Book Soup Sunset Strip newsstand called News Muse, um, which was a, a, a great place for cultural activity. But that's what led me into helping out with author events, meeting authors and publishers, and ultimately what got me into all of what I'm doing now. Cool. And and um, I believe when you were at Book Soup, you were you were there that night when Hunter S. Thompson delivered one of his last public readings. Uh, I think late 2004, just a few months before he died. What was what was that night like? Uh, it was crazy. I think it was October 18th. 2004, if my memory serves correct. And we had done a number of things with him and, and the whole crew that was traveling around then. There was a Chateau Marmont party, and then there was a Toshin uh, bookstore. I think the Toshin event in Beverly Hills was his last appearance, but it was total mayhem. I mean, it was people excited and, and, um, you know, the fandom was out. The entourage was in full of star-studded effect. Uh, and Hunter was uh, was in obvious pain. I, if I remember right, his one of his knees was really in bad shape. and uh, But he, he just kept on, you know. And um, in hindsight, the writing was on the wall, but I was pretty shocked. I don't know if that just had to do with me being absorbed uh, in uh, other things that was were going on in my life, but you know when when he uh, shot himself, that you know it seemed appropriate in some ways for him to do something like that. But then uh, I remember being very taken aback by it. So, uh, but that night was was great. It was legendary. And uh, tell us about your decision to to branch out from Book Soup and and start your own marketing and publishing company. Right, I didn't have the intentions to do that at all, really. Uh, uh, I left the bookstore ultimately because the owner Glenn Goldman died of pancreatic cancer on January third, two thousand nine. Um, just just under a month from diagnosis. So it was pretty quick. Um, then myself and a couple other employees uh, ran the store like um, Lord of the Flies for 11 months until they sold it. Uh, we did a lot of great and crazy things during that time. Um, and then another bookstore bought it and I went on to do different things. But the beginning of all the rare bird publishing and and the extensions of being a bookseller um, started a, a lot a long time before that maybe a few years 
uh, before Glenn died, we were collectively haggling over publishing books. And Glenn had a number of uh, authors that he was really close with. Uh, Bruce Wagner was one of them that um, when, when Bruce published his first book, uh, he published it on his own in a different age of self-publishing. It is printed up, I think, a thousand copies and only sold them at Book Soup, mm-hmm. sold through that entire print run. And so Glenn always had this idea that he would start a Book Soup imprint not too dissimilar from City Lights Bookstore, City Lights Publishers and whatnot. But nobody could really agree on what to publish. So Glenn would have his ideas and the staff would hate him. Uh, I had my ideas and Glenn was uh, skeptical (laughs) and nobody ever made any decisions about anything. So I'd like to think that the spirit of what we brought into the early days of Rare Bird, really kind of the tail end of the book soup spirit. And if Glenn wouldn't have died, uh, I would have convinced him to publish books and who knows, maybe what we'd be doing now would be the book soup imprint. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and then the, the publish, publishing industry in general has changed dramatically since you first started. And even in the last few years with these massive mergers of huge publishing houses. Uh, so what is it like right now for midsize indie publishers like rare bird? What does the, the future hold? Well, I, th- I think it's an extremely exciting time to be doing what what we're doing. I mean, there are a lot of disadvantages, but at the same time, the gloves are off. And, you know, I mean, there's a lot of distance between what we do and what the Rupert Murdoch publishing houses and the Viacom publishing houses are are doing. Uh, Even five years ago, um, there was a little bit more overlap um, you know, I mean, we were a lot smaller then. Uh, there was definitely a toss-up between, you know, whether the Groves of the World would get the book over the the Penguin Random Houses. But the dividing lines, they're just a lot, they're a lot more distant, I think. I, you know, I don't think anybody that I'm observing is trying to compete. I think um you know, it's just pretty clear that if we don't all work together, corporate and indie, uh, you know, we're all going to be at a disadvantage. Mm-hmm. Is there the threat of these these big uh, companies completely monopolizing the market and taking over indie publishers? No, 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 no. I think it creates problems, um, obstacles, mm-hmm. but... No, I mean, it's just a cyclical thing about, you know, what's on the cutting edge and what's hip and who's got their ear to the street and who doesn't and who's following trends, who's making the trends, mm-hmm. you know? Uh, yeah, I mean, we could we could talk for for many, many hours on on the idiosyncrasies of that, but ultimately it's just, you know, the same thing, but wearing different clothes. Mm-hmm. And and so, how has the uh, the pandemic impacted the publishing industry, or or has it? Uh, it's been it's been 
pretty heavy all around. I mean, uh, not even taking into consideration the, you know, the loss of jobs and the and mortality and those effects, which are real. Um, the, you know, bookstores being closed a bit. That's been devastating, but. Um, you know, we've noticed on our end and it seems pretty apparent that people are at least ordering more books. Uh, you know, I mean, when, when publishers and authors get paid for those books is a different conversation, but, uh, you know, people seem hungry. I, it just, it kind of reminds me of the end of the movie cable guy where the power goes out and, um, you know, people start picking up books. That's, that's how I kind of think of it. People are exhausting their Netflix accounts and turning to books and hopefully they're reading them. It definitely seems like they're ordering them and buying them. So. Yeah, that, that was going to be one of my questions was, uh, are people still reading? Have you noticed an increase or, or decrease? Uh, you know, I, I always worry that physical books are going to go the way of, I don't know, LPs or, or something. <laughs> No, no. I mean, ebooks are continuing to decline in most genres, and that's been a steady, a steady trajectory. Uh, mostly, I think, because people spend enough time on their devices, and when they actually want to read a book that isn't a self-help book or a business book, you know, they they don't really want to turn to uh, their phone or their a device. I think the the exceptions there are um, genres where people inhale so many books uh, with rapid speed, like mystery and romance, where it's so beautiful to just just you know uh, download stuff fast, get through it, and you don't have to clear out the stockpiles from your garage. Mm-hmm. Yeah, my, my I I'm reading one book after another and prefer to buy them rather than, you know, get them from the library or something or use uh, eBooks. And um, it's a, a source of constant tension with my wife about how many, how many books I'm allowed to, to store. Yeah. That's, I mean, any book lover has that, mm-hmm. that issue. Yeah. For me, it's that. And how many guitars uh, I get to keep at the house, mm-hmm. <laughs> you know, um, and so what, what are some of the books that, uh, rare bird uh, books has coming up in the pipeline? We have a great true crime book out now by, uh, Chip Jacobs, uh, fellow Pasadena area person, uh, that, you know, and, uh, in multiple printings with that, we have a, we have a bunch of entertainment books that we're working on music, music memoirs by rock and metal people, um, right now. Uh, we're co-publishing two art books with uh, William T. Volman um, and Unnamed Press, which is another uh, Southern California independent publishing company. And these are beasts. <laughs> I mean, it's two and a half, nine and a half by 14 and a quarter art books. And I mean, if you're a Volman fan at, it essentially goes through his entire career. Um, so it helps to have read his works and um, his art 
photography, commentary, travelogue, and it's just classic Vaultman. Uh, I've been a big fan and a friend for a long time, and uh, it's just an honor to be working on that. But, you know, I, I myself alone, not including uh, everybody else that's working on it. I mean, I, I have over 120 hours in already on editorial and design, and we're still not done. So it's <laughs> it's an overhaul. When, when are those coming out? They were supposed to come out in July, but we're... Uh, <laughs> Well, we're not done with it yet. So um, it, we pushed the pub date back to November. Hopefully uh, things go well with that. I'm going up next week to uh, review files with Bill. And um, if we're looking good by the end of the month, we'll keep that pub date. If we need to do serious additional work, then who knows? But uh, regardless, it's not, it's not a project that we want to uh, rush through or hastily produce. Uh, it's an important one. And, um, you know, quality is just as valuable to us as uh, staying on schedule. Mm-hmm. And then, and you also have the, uh, the oral history of leftover crack coming up. Uh, <laughs> yes, we I, do. I, I interviewed um, Brad Logan last month. Yeah. Uh, what a, what a phenomenal group of people. I mean, very polarizing in a lot of ways, but uh, I mean, having that kind of, uh, I don't know how to put it. I mean, there's definitely an, an energy and a spirit that, you know, for people that have been doing, doing that for a long time, I, I have to commend them that, uh, that, that they have so much energy for what they're making, but it's, you know, it's genuine art. And I, as far as music is concerned, I won't even go there with authors right now on this, but, you know, for bands to, to care that much and be that affected with what they're producing, you know, regardless if you, you like their music or not, I mean, you definitely have to respect that. But at the same time, the book was pitched to me in a very odd way. It was, uh, from the angle that they had burned every relationship they've ever had with uh, their labels, their fans, I mean, band members. And then it was, you know, how'd you like to publish the book? And (laughs) okay, well, you know, if this is going to end in a lawsuit, then probably not, but it's all, it's all in good fun. And I have so much respect for those guys and, can't wait to get this book out there. Uh, we have tons of great support, tons of orders at this point. So um, it's going to be really exciting to mix the book world with their uh, music fans. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's going to be really interesting. Um, and then, and then um, one final question. Um, besides the, the, the books you're working on, are you reading any good books right now? Um. Yeah, I mean, it's, I don't know how c- contemporary, but I've been on a Napoleon kick. So there, I, I have four Napoleon tomes um, that I uh, really got into um, halfway through the, through the pandemic of last year. And I've, you know, in my brain just been really stuck, um, you know, two, 200, 250 years ago. And I, it, Part of part of my um, intentions, I think, intentionally or not, 
is just to disconnect from what's happening in current events. Uh, not to say that I, uh, you know, I'm I'm not interested or want to participate, but needless to say, the last year has been extremely overwhelming and taking a vacation to the, uh, the past has been really, that's been my coping mechanism. And it's been very interesting. Great. Well, thank you so much, Tyson. I really appreciate you coming on the show. Likewise. Thank you so much, Justin. Appreciate it. All right. Take care. Too. Thank you all for tuning in. If you need recommendations for Goodreads, check out The Handmaid's Tale by Margaret Atwood. Whether you're watching the show or not, this is a must read with terrifying implications for how women are treated in our own society today. And if you're not watching the show, you need to get on that immediately because it's amazing. One of the best shows on television right now. You might not know that there was also a movie version as well in 1990. Though that one, while interesting, uh, let's just say it's clear that it was made in the 90s. Also check out Game Chains by John Heilman. This book takes a close look at what happened during the 2008 U.S. presidential race. From the bitter primary between Obama and Clinton, John Edwards' fall from grace, and the gobsmacking phenomenon known as Sarah Palin, which proved to be a precursor for the rise of Trumpism the canary in the coal mine, if you will. And check out After the Fall, Being American in the World We've Made by Ben Rhodes, who served as President Obama's speechwriter and deputy national security advisor. After Trump, what it means to be American in this world is changing. This insightful book examines that dynamic with a realistic worldview, while still providing hope as we look to what comes next in this crazy world. That's it for this episode. Thanks for watching. Stay tuned for new episodes of Well Read once a month. You can find this show on YouTube and the Pasadena Media TV channel. Check for showtimes at pasadenamedia.org or watch it on their streaming app. I'm Justin Chapman, signing off. Learn more about my work at justindouglaschapman.com and sign up to receive my monthly email newsletter to get updates on what I'm working on at justinchapman.substack.com slash subscribe. And remember, a life well read is a life well spent. So go read a book. Till next time.